It's great to be back with you. Thank you so much. I'm always pleased to have an invitation uh, to be here at St. Peter's Fireside. My name is Ross Lockhart, and uh, if I haven't met you here before, uh, my day job is Dean of St. Andrew's Hall, which is the Presbyterian Church in Canada College uh, and residence that's located at the University of British Columbia. Not this campus, but the other campus, the big campus. Uh, it's really good to be with you, and uh, I guess preach most Sundays. I was saying as we were doing a mic check uh, today, this is much easier. Last Sunday, I was uh, the theme speaker at uh, our largest Presbyterian summer camp, and that's in Ontario on the shores of Lake Huron. Uh, and I had to compete. It was a super stormy day, and the waves were crashing in. And I was uh, speaking in this outdoor chapel, and there were like 200 people there. And I could hardly get my words uh, over the sound of the crashing waves. So this is quite a difference this week. Uh, to be in this quiet space with all of you. Uh, as a guest preacher, I usually ask uh, folks when I go to preach, hey, do you want me to like pick my own text, or do you have one for me? Uh, and Phil said, well, you know, we're kind of working through the Gospel of Luke, so it would be helpful if you take this piece uh, from Luke's Gospel that was just read so well for us. Uh, and I have to say, I love when preachers do that, when they say, can you preach on this text? Because what I find is it forces me to spend time in a text that I may not have preached for a very long time. And that was the case this week. So thanks for the privilege of sitting with this text on behalf of this community. And now uh, in the next few minutes uh, to reflect together on what I hope uh, God is saying to us through this text. I've entitled my message today, A Fox in the Hen House, and I think we have an amazing picture to go with that. We're ready? <laughs> Isn't that all right? I think that's all right. Uh, I hope that title makes sense as we roll along. Okay, first thing to know is where are we in Luke's gospel? It's always important when you're uh, wrestling with a biblical text to figure out what's surrounding it and where are we in the story. So Luke 9 is a pretty pivotal uh, turning point in the gospel. Actually, in each of the gospels, it's the story of the transfiguration. And that's the story you'll recall where Jesus goes camping, uh, you know, kind of a, a trip uh, up the mountain uh, with his disciples. And there they encounter Moses and Elijah and a theophany takes place. That's where God the Father speaks this is my son, my beloved, listen to him, right? It also happens at Jesus' baptism. And then once the blinding light is finished, they come down the mountain. Bible scholars say in each of the Gospels, after the transfiguration, that's the transition point. And the phrase that's usually used is Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. The equivalent would be something like, uh, for those of us who fly often, when you're over Kelowna and the pilot comes on and says, what, flight attendants, 30 minutes till landing, right? You know you're, oh, okay, now we're starting to come near the end of the gospel story. And so Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. And there are these amazing events that happen in 10, 11, and 12 into Luke 13. And Jesus is sharing parables, famous parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, as a professor of mission studies, uh, folks in my uh, part of the academy love Luke 10 because that's, of course, where Jesus sends the disciples out 
to have their own ministry, but with like training wheels on, and they come back and they report in, and Jesus delights in all that they've accomplished in God's name, right? I saw Satan fall like lightning, he tells them. And he's doing a lot of casting out of demons, a lot of healing in these verses. And then we get to the capstone of Luke 13 that was read today. And in this story, we encounter some interesting characters. The Pharisees come and they approach Jesus. Now, when this usually happens in the Gospels, it's a bit of a contest, right? Sometimes they come with a a tricky question to see if this undocumented Rabbi Yeshua from the Galilee can actually answer their question, is he the real deal? And there's this back and forth. Often a parable will come out of that kind of encounter. But what happens here is the Pharisees come to warn Jesus that Herod is on the lookout to kill him. And so it's best that he avoids Herod. Now, at first glance, that sounds like they're doing the right thing. But we always come to a text preconditioned. We have our minds filled with previous experiences of our life of faith with Jesus, reading the Bible. And so, uh, you know, most of us are kind of suspicious when we hear the Pharisees. If you're an adult convert, you may not know too much about the Pharisees. You've just heard them from time to time. I remember growing up in Sunday school in Winnipeg that whenever the Pharisees were described as a kid growing up, it was almost like those um, supervillains from the old movies. Like, uh, you know, the, the guy I often refer to Pharisees as the guy in the black and white movie with the long mustache that would tie the lady to the track, right? Kind of like pure evil kind of thing, right? But it's such a trope. It's so unfair for the Pharisees. The Pharisees, first of all, they weren't even clergy. They were lay people, and they were lay people committed to renewal of their faith. It was a pietistic movement, and I think it was really quite noteworthy. And we have others in the Christian tradition, including the Apostle Paul, who says, hey, like, I was a Pharisee. There, there are a number of folks involved. So was this another trap they were laying for Jesus, or were they actually genuinely concerned about his welfare? I don't know. You're going to have to decide for yourself. But what the Bible says is that they come to warn Jesus that Herod is after him. So then you say, okay, uh, but who is the Herod that's after him? Is this the Herod that we encounter at Christmas, the one who uh, is afraid of the power of this newborn Messiah, remember, You remember when the wise men come to visit Herod and he says, oh, yeah, you go off and you find where this child is and then you come back and let me know so I too may go and pay him homage, right? You know this story and then as the wise men leave to go home by another road, uh, Mary and Joseph decide it's time to pick up stakes and to take baby Jesus away from that area to save his life. This past spring, I was leading a study tour through uh, Egypt and Israel, and I found, it quite, um, I found it quite humbling to be in Cairo in the Coptic churches. If you know the history, recent history of the Coptic Christians in Egypt, they're often persecuted. Uh, there's violence from time to time in their communities of faith that is perpetrated upon them. And I picked up an icon, I think we have a picture of that, 
Uh, I love icons. I find icons fascinating. So I picked up this icon that was um, uh, written, as they would say, painted, we might say, uh, just this year by uh, a young uh, Christian who was sitting outside of one of their churches. And I just love that here we have baby Jesus. See the pyramids in the top left-hand corner? And Joseph and Mary fleeing from Herod. It means a lot, I think, for us as uh, often privileged Canadians uh, following Jesus to remember that our Lord and Savior was a refugee, that in his earliest days, uh, his life was threatened and he had to flee. But here's the thing. That's not the Herod that we're talking about in this passage. It gets super confusing. Herod, that was Herod the Great that threatened Jesus' life. And so Mary and Joseph have to remain in Egypt. Some of those churches you visit in Cairo will have, you know, they'll claim that this was the well the Holy Family took water from and so forth. I find when I visit biblical places, there's often competing claims, and the guy in the gift shop will claim that his spot is the real spot. So, you know, up to you to decide. But they remain in Egypt until Herod the Great dies. And then what happens? The Romans are always in charge. They just have their kind of puppet governments. So they decide to take Herod's control, his territory, and snap it into pieces and to assign it, right, to different sons of Herod. And there is uh, one called Herod Antipas. It's easy to remember because it's like Antipasta. Herod Antipas, who is given, he's called the Tetrarch, He's given all of the Galilee. That's his area that he's in charge of. Now, when you think about it, the overwhelming majority of gospel stories that we have about Jesus' ministry is where? It's in the Galilee. So Jesus' adult ministry took place under the control, the earthly authority of this Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch. This is the Herod that the Pharisees are warning Jesus about. And so they should. This guy was bad news. Now, he wasn't as bad news as his father, who, when you visit uh, Israel and Palestine, you to this day can see the legacy of Herod the Great, this guy that chased the Holy Family out of Israel. He built places like Caesarea Maritima, where Pontius Pilate was based, where Paul was imprisoned. He built Masada, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, He even did things like uh, wanted to build a place for him to be buried, but he wanted from his burial chambers to keep an eye on Jerusalem, and there was a mountain in the way, so he literally moved a mountain in order to build the place that he would be buried. It's called Herodium uh, in the West Bank, and you can visit it to this day. His son was of less ambition, But he did build the city of Tiberias, which still exists to this day. Now, he did a bit of an oops. He named it after the Roman emperor, because that was just smart, right, to kind of like honor the emperor. But he built it on top of an old graveyard. So pious Jews felt the city was unclean. So he kind of screwed up things like that along the way. But he tried. But he was also a very unpleasant person. How unpleasant was he? He had people bumped off all the time. Picture kind of like a a mob boss from a Hollywood movie. That's you're kind of getting a a, a picture in your mind of Herod. He also did something a little icky. Are you ready for it? 
He married not only his sister-in-law, that's kind of like poor form, right? But the same lady, I kid you not, the same lady, wait for it, was not only his sister-in-law, but his niece. Ooh, come on, can we say it? Ooh, yeah, like that's poor form, come on. And so uh, guess who's upset about that in scripture? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, I am living in this region, this is totally offside, this is disgusting, and speaks out about it. And what happens to John the Baptist? Gets arrested. And then what happens to John the Baptist? For a party trick, he has his head taken off. This is the same guy that the Pharisees are warning Jesus about, right? So you're getting a sense that this guy is no good, and Jesus should heed the warning. So what does Jesus say? Well, we just read it. He says back to the Pharisees, you go tell that fox. He calls him a fox, first dominant image in this very short passage that we're looking at today. You go tell that fox, and dot, dot, dot. Basically what he says is, I'm not afraid of Herod because I am now, my face is set towards Jerusalem. I'm making my way there. I'm fulfilling the Father's mission. I am casting out demons, I am healing, he's preaching, he's doing all of these things. And this despot's earthly power does not touch me, does not bother me. I will not be concerned for one moment about what Herod could do to me. Besides which, he knows his destination, it is Jerusalem, it is the cross. And he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and only in Jerusalem are prophets killed. So he knows Jesus already is publicly declaring what will happen to him, but he is saying that God's sovereign power could care less about the threats of Herod, that God's plan is in motion and nothing will stop God's plan from happening. And so as he continues, he moves towards Jerusalem, and then in the dialogue text, he switches to talk about that place that he is going to Now, I don't know about you, if you knew you were going to a place that you were going to be treated badly, I would say bad things about that place and about those people. That's just me. I'm a recovering sinner like the rest of us, right? But Jesus, surprisingly, this tone switches. And when he addresses in the presence of these Pharisees, Jerusalem, it is pure compassion that he speaks with in his heart. And here's where we get this second beautiful image. He says that as he thinks about Jerusalem, he longs to embrace the city, the city that will do him grievous harm. He longs to embrace everyone in that city like a mother hen would shield her chicks with her wing. Now, this next image is such a beautiful, powerful image. Think of the contrasting images. The reading today is so short, it's such a brief little reading, but these two powerful images of a fox, an unclean animal in the Jewish tradition, cunning, not to be trusted, and the mother hen who is protecting her chicks. But Jesus says he longs to embrace Jerusalem and everyone in it, like a mother hen who covers her chicks with her wings, but the chicks don't want to be covered, and they go away. This is one of the struggles that we have. 
is that we realize that although Jesus is longing to offer his love, his forgiveness, his salvation to everyone, we are free creatures to choose whether or not to come under the shelter of his wing. Now, those Pharisees were right to warn Jesus about Herod. Because I don't want to give away too much. I know you're going through Luke, and eventually someone else will preach on Luke 23. But when you come to the Holy Week story, guess who shows up in Jerusalem? It's Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, from Galilee. He also makes his way to Jerusalem during Passover. And only in Luke's gospel does it say that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, says, Wait a minute, he says to Jesus, you're you're from the Galilee? Hey, we got the guy in charge of the Galilee in town. You should go see him. And he sends Jesus to meet with Herod, this person that he's been warned against. And of course, Herod does nothing to help Jesus. But even knowing that he was going to encounter the fox, Herod, in the hen house of Jerusalem, Jesus is still moved with compassion for the city. Now, that same compassion is extended to our city, for Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the risen Lord who rules all and is in all and has promised to be present where two or three gather, which means Jesus is literally here with us now in this place, worshiping, receiving our praise. And his arms continue to extend The shelter is given for all those who say yes to coming under his authority and love and presence. We heard a beautiful testimony about Alpha at the beginning of worship. And I'm humbled as someone who studies churches in Vancouver and other places to recognize how important it is that we tell the stories of our own personal lives when we have come under the shelter of Jesus' wings. I had a guest in for a lecture and a workshop this weekend at the college named Andy Root. He's a friend of mine. He teaches at Luther Seminary in Minneapolis. And he was telling us about a research project he was on interviewing lay people in Seattle a number of years ago. And one of, in the interview guide he created, which we do as we do these kind of focus groups and so forth as professors, one of the questions he asked was, can you tell me a story about a time in your life when someone helped you and you were sure it was Jesus acting through that person? He said it was a bold question and he wondered, kind of spitballing ahead of time, he thought maybe a quarter of the people I interview will have a story. Every single person that he interviewed for that project, could tell a powerful, compelling story of a time in their life when they were in trouble and they encountered someone, but it wasn't just the person, the taxi driver, the the stranger on the street, the next door neighbor, whatever. They could feel Jesus working through that person, extending those wings of shelter and protection. Those stories are here today sitting in these chairs. I know it. We have those stories. And the powerful thing is when we share the stories of God's activity in our life. I remember speaking at a church, this was just pre-COVID, in Edmonton. 
And I was heading out to the airport. I'd leave the conference a little bit early for my flight. And so I dialed up uh, an Uber, and the guy pulled up by the curb, and I got in the back seat. Now, I usually like talking to people coming from the prairies. We like, you know, talk to people all the time. But I was kind of tired, so just kind of slipped into the back seat and did what most of us do, pulled out my phone, started like checking texts and emails and that kind of thing. But the driver wanted to talk and said to me, uh, were you doing something at that church? And I look as the church kind of disappears behind. I say, oh yeah, I was uh, speaking at a conference there. So he said, are you like a, like a pastor or something? I say, yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's great. Hey, uh, you might want to know I've met Jesus too. I thought, well, that's, that's amazing. I said, would you like to hear my story? I said, sure. And he started to drive. And he said, look, uh, my life was like really messed up years ago. Uh, my marriage fell apart. I couldn't even see my own kids. Uh, work was terrible. I got fired. And uh, I reached a point where I just thought maybe this world was better off without me than with me in it. I thought, well, this is an interesting story. We'll see where this is going. We're now out on the highway going towards the airport. Uh, and he said, yeah, so I decided to go home and uh, went into my garage, and I thought, this is where my life ends. And I said, well, what happened? Which was a silly question, because the guy was there driving me in an Uber, so clearly, like, he's still alive. <laughs> Good question, right? Uh, he said, well, uh, Jesus showed up. I said, well, tell me more. And he said, yeah, just before I was about to follow through on my plan, I heard Jesus say, don't do it. And I turned and he was there. And I said, well, what, what happened next? And he said, Jesus opened his arms and gave me a huge embrace. Almost like a mother hen extending her arms for shelter. And he said, my life has been totally different since then. People who knew me before don't even recognize me anymore. God has been so faithful and so good. And the church that I joined has helped me every step of the way. You see, Jesus continues to open those arms, knowing that the world around us has many foxes that are waiting to just pick people off. But under his protection, under his shelter, we find our true identity, meaning, and purpose. And then this passage ends with that great little line, you won't see me again until you say, until you proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's, of course, right from our communion liturgy. Many communion liturgies will have, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. And then what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Just what they shouted when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Well, every time we gather here and break bread and drink wine and remember and celebrate the life of Jesus Christ, I want you to think of that image of the mother hen extending her wings, providing shelter, not just for you and for me, but for those who have not yet heard the good news of the gospel and are waiting for your testimony as well. Let's pray.